0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today I will examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with today's hearing by the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, which focused on the role of Trump's unrelenting pressure on Vice President Pence to follow a bogus legal theory and violate the Constitution so that Trump could remain in power after losing an election his top aides told him repeatedly he had lost. Joining us is Jennifer Taub, a legal scholar and professor of law at the Western New England School of Law, who previously taught at Harvard Law School. We will discuss today's details from those in the room of the internal White House battles between Pence and his lawyers and Trump's outlier and legal charlatan, John Eastman. Then we'll get an analysis of the Fed's interest rate rise and its impact on the market and the economy and speak with Robert Hockett who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy and is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. His latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve and Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal. And he has an article at Forbes, Liquidity Reserves and Commodity Reserves, A Marriage Proposal. Then finally, with growing tensions over Taiwan, following warnings by China for the US not to enter the Taiwan Straits, we will speak with Michael Swain director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia Program and one of the most prominent American scholars of Chinese security studies. Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asia international relations. He also advises the U.S. government on Asian security issues, and his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan, and conflict and cooperation in the Asia-Pacific region, a strategic net assessment. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, Jennifer Taub, who's a legal scholar and professor of law at Western New England Law School, who previously taught at Harvard Law School. Her writing focuses on corporate governance, banking and financial markets regulation, white collar crime and corruption, and she's testified as a banking law expert before Congress. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jennifer Taub.
1: Hi, thanks for having me back.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Jennifer, and you've watched as I did most of almost all of today's hearing before the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th uh, insurrection. And it did seem to get a little bit into the legal weeds, uh, particularly over the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, which I think probably most people don't know what that is. So what was your uh, sense of it uh, in terms of whether this was a lesson in the abuse of law or more evidence piling up against Trump that presumably could be forwarded at some point to the Justice Department.
1: Yeah, I mean, although some of this seemed to get into the weeds, I think the most important takeaway from this hearing, I guess it's two parts. Part one is that Donald Trump knew he lost the election and understood that the lies about election fraud We're not going to convince courts to overturn the results. So he pressured Mike Pence to try to do something completely unlawful, which the person telling him to do it, Eastman knew was unlawful. And when Pence wouldn't buckle, he he sicked his dogs on Pence. I mean, he, the Proud Boys and others who he told to stand back and stand by were there standing back and standing by. And he poured gasoline on the fire as one of Mark Meadows, his chief of staff's uh, employees said. So the main takeaway from this is I think the hearing today established that Donald Trump knew exactly what he was doing. He knew he lost and he knew the only way uh, he could overturn the election is to get Mike Pence to act illegally. So that's the big takeaway. I think the second takeaway, which is much more chilling than that, is that uh, a lead lawyer who was uh, uh, providing uh, advice to Pence, although not officially, um, on January sixth, testified today. His name is Luddig. He's a judge and he's he a retired judge, and he said, I'm quoting him, that today, almost two years after that fateful day in January of 2021, still Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are clear in present danger. To American
0: democracy. Well, the story of the pressure that he put on Trump was relentless, and it involved threats that were initially implied, and then as Pence resisted, the threats became more overt. And then on the speech on the ellipse on January the sixth, Trump sort of almost openly challenged the mob to hang Mike Pence, which is what they were chanting. I mean, he he pointed out that. Earlier uh, hearings have made the link between the paramilitary wing of Trump's GOP and the parliamentary wing, with the Proud Boys doing the reconnaissance on the Capitol, finding the weak spots, and then waiting for Trump to summon a mob so they'd have the bodies to storm the Capitol. Now, we can see it from today's testimony, uh, the story between this president and his own vice president, who he tried to convince with this bogus legal theory put forth by this outlier in Charlotte and charlatan, uh, John Eastman and everybody in the world was telling him it's not going to fly, it's, it's unconstitutional, just as they had told him that he lost the election. But he doesn't listen. He's obviously absolutely focused on staying in power at all cost. Do you think that final message is going to come through? Because it seems so obvious to me that this, you know, we get all the details about what they told Trump, and he wasn't listening. But it's so clear that the reason that Trump's not listening is all he's focused on is is staying in power, one way or the other. And
1: oh, the- Ian, I have to say, people say he wasn't listening. That's not true. Trump listens, but to him, words um, as a con artist and as a bully and as a demagogue, words. You know, you and I are using words to either communicate, you know, convey meaning, persuade, whatever things that we use words to do, but we do so and try to speak accurately and truthfully. That's not what words are about for Donald Trump. He doesn't want to be communicated to in a truthful way. He uses words as lures, kind of like you send out a fishing line to, you know, hook a fish. And the only words that he wants to use or hear are words that give him what he wants. And what he wanted was to stay in power. What he wanted was to be able to say, which he continues to say that he didn't lose. So he would listen to people, but he would decide he doesn't didn't want that those words were not relevant to him. And so he finally, you know ultimately, you know, you see this happening on the ellipse, right? He's been he knows what he's he knows that uh, Mike Pence has no legal authority to just discard uh, the votes or to throw it back to the legislature. Even Rudy knew that at that point, and so did Eastman, who finally had admitted that it would be a 9-0 to zero loss at SCOTUS. Uh, but even before that, knew that he would lose. Everyone knows it's a losing argument, but they get up there, and they did what they did because now their words weren't about truth. Their words about were summoning the mob to threaten Pence, and they were hoping that if he was gone or dead or just everything kind of went wild, they could actually themselves stop stop the count.
0: Well, it is a portrait of a demagogue, a wannabe dictator, a neo-fascist or even a fascist. I mean, what happened on January 6th wasn't a fascist coup attempt, and we're hearing from people that were right inside the room witnesses to these conversations what this committee is doing could not be clearer so to your mind jennifer do you think that this can ever reach people in the MAGA world because my god i mean how how much more clear could this picture be that they're developing and of course you know the the committee will continue to make a clearer and clearer picture but to this at this point it's pretty overwhelming isn't
1: it well You know, in terms of being effective and reaching people in the MAGA world, I don't think they're necessarily reachable. I think it's people who have thought, well, you you know, the way you described it, you know, they're the parliamentary way to try to overturn their election. And then there was the mob way. And I think there are still people in this country who don't like Donald Trump, but they kind of think that these things kind of never link together. We're just separate things. And I think that this is helpful in conveying to them that it is. But there are really two audiences here. One, I think, is Merrick Garland at the Department of Justice and any other type of prosecutor. And then the other audience is going to be the future secretaries of state when there are ballot challenges to putting Donald Trump on the ballot. Similar to what happened with um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn, there will be challenges in the states by uh, voters in the states, and to the extent that this hearing creates a record that he was, um, that he you know was, had, was a, an elected official which he was at the time of the insurrection, that he'd taken an oath of office and then he participated in the insurrection or encouraged it, then he cannot be on ballot. So there's a lot there's a lot of, a lot of groundwork being laid here.
0: Um, beyond the surface. And the former Trump White House attorney, Eric Hirschman, they played his clip a few times where he, on the day, he told Eastman, look, you know, this is what you've done, you (laughs) effing idiot. Then he finally said, you know, let me give you some free legal advice. Find a good effing defense lawyer. So what's your sense of what's going to happen to Eastman here I mean, and particularly, I mean, I don't know what will happen with Virginia Thomas, Ginny Thomas, the wife of the Supreme Court Justice, uh, who was in communication with Eastman, but something should be done there. I mean, isn't the link between Ginny Thomas's working with Eastman on this coup attempt and the fact that her husband, the Supreme Court Justice, Clarence Thomas, was the only vote, and the 8-to-1 vote in favour of the White House's stonewalling this committee to hand over documents?
1: So I'm going to address each of the things you said there. There are three different things, and it's so, it's so uh, tasty. So the first thing, I really can't get enough of the Eric Hirschman, White House lawyer, uh, you know, taped testimony. Um, I, I just, I, I find it helpful, not just because, as you said, he told um, Eastman, you better get, you know, really good defense, an effing good defense lawyer, criminal defense lawyer. But remember the words he said, I only want to hear two words from you, orderly transition, right? So the more people hear these words, orderly transition and obstructing the orderly transition of power you know, becomes an obstruction of you know of a, of a proceeding it also becomes uh, obstructing the of vote is obstructing of a proceeding under the abstract criminal obstruction statutes but we also have a conspiracy to defraud at the united states and that kind of defraud doesn't have to be money or property it just it just could mean um interfering or obstructing a process like an orderly transition so there's a lot going on there but let's get to eastman himself you asked what happens to him You know, he did get a good lawyer, uh, not good enough. I mean, he has taken the fifth when he goes to the committee hearings. But his lawyer, as good as his lawyer was, his lawyer was not able to convince a judge that his communications and emails should be kept secret, right? There's the crime fraud um, exception to attorney-client privilege. So a great deal of Eastman's communications are being handed over. And yes, we're now finding out through the Washington Post that he was communicating with Ginny Thomas and just last night with the New York Times that perhaps he might have been um, showing off and it might not have been true, but it seems to be the case that people believe, like Cheeseman and others believe that he had, you know, some insights, some personal information and insights as to how justices might rule if there were a challenge right before, another challenge up to the Supreme Court uh, right before January 6th. So I think, I mean, Eastman is in a, in a, I would be very shocked if Eastman were not um, indicted at some point. Some people think he might uh, cooperate as a cooperating witness to decrease his um, exposure. I highly doubt that. Not many people have um, cooperated or flipped on Trump and there are examples of those who do, and they always end up worse off than those who keep quiet. Um, So if he actually thinks Donald Trump might, uh, get elected or appointed, or if he actually thinks a Republican will be in the White House, he's going to sit tight and wait for his pardon, I would imagine. And Ginny Thomas, for now, you know, although I think the committee was shying away from calling her, I don't see how this committee can be doing credible work if she is not called as a witness, even if she refuses. Because right now, we're lo- learning that um, some people are above the law, And uh, that includes, you know, it looks like Donald Trump and Ginny Thomas. We can't have that in this country.
0: Well, Jennifer Taub, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for the invitation. Great speaking with you, Ian.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Jennifer Taub, who's a legal scholar and professor of law at Western New England Law School who previously taught at Harvard Law School. Her writing focuses on corporate governance, banking and financial market regulation, white-collar crime and corruption, and she's testified as a banking law expert before Congress. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an analysis of the Fed's interest rate rise and its impact on the markets and the economy. Life- Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working in the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislatures and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexander Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy. He's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. And his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve and Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal. And he has an article at Forbes, Liquidity Reserves and Commodity Reserves, A Marriage Proposal. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Hockett.
2: Thanks so much, Ian. Great to be with you again.
0: Well, thanks for joining us in Wednesday the Fed announced uh, Jerome Powell announced a three-quarters of a percentage point rise in the interest rates and he also talked about the need to head off inflation but he used a rather odd phraseology he said uh, that he believes that it's possible to head off inflation but it's possible that the Fed would achieve a softish landing I don't think that was a particularly resolute statement. How did it strike you?
2: Um, It it struck me as sort of typical Fed doublespeak, right? One one thing that the Fed almost never does is to speak clearly and definitively. Uh, It seems to be part of the policy. And I think the reason for the policy in turn is they don't want to sort of show too much about what they're thinking or what they're planning to do. Um, And they also don't want to be sort of caught up in some later or subsequent error, um, or at least some accusation of error, right? So you'll recall that when an inflationary pressures first began to emerge uh, last summer, um, many people referred to those pressures as transitory, right? Um, now, the problem is, every you know, nobody seems to know this outside of the Fed, but anybody who understands the English language clearly understands that transitory doesn't mean, you know, five minutes or three days or whatever. I mean, transitory could be a year or two. But um, for, for whatever reason, uh, commenta- uh, commentators and various pundits seem to have thought that transitory must have meant only two weeks or something. And so now they're saying, you see, it's not just transitory, it's still happening. Um, and I think in consequence, Mr. Powell is feeling like he's got egg on his face, even though, again, he doesn't, because transitory never met just a couple of days or a couple of weeks. In any event, I think he's then taking extra care, you know, not to be sort of pinned down this time as having been mistaken, as many of his predecessors tended to do as well, most notably, of course, Greenspan.
0: Well, Powell did say on Wednesday that we have to restore price stability. We really do. It's the bedrock of the economy. And then in terms of heading off inflation, he said, well, now it'll depend on factors that we don't control. Fluctuations and spikes in commodity prices could wind up taking that option out of our hands. We just don't know. So I guess um, Biden is heading off to Saudi Arabia in July Mm -hmm. Hat in hand to beg the the Saudi, the murderous little punk Saudi leader, to turn on the spigot. What's your sense in uh, in terms of how this is going to affect the average American here? The 30-year fixed-rate mortgage for for home buying is now at 5.78%, which is what highest hike since uh, 1987, I think.
2: Yeah, uh, I think, I mean, there's a um, there's sort of a good news and a bad news story here. Uh, we'll start with the bad news first, I suppose, and then the good news. I mean, the, the bad news is that obviously they're trying to engineer a, a slowdown and they're doing so at considerable risk then of, of disemploying lots of people who have been and come to be employed in recent months and years. Um, this is, as you know, uh one of the strongest labor markets that we've had in a long time. And so labor actually has more bargaining power. Labor, uh, labor's share of uh, the national income is moving upward again in the way that it used to do always with productivity until about 40 years ago. It's basically been you know gradually moving back toward being a, a worker's economy, or at least the closest thing to that that the U.S. has ever had. Um, and we should be celebrating that, of course. And the bad news um, is that we're now going to risk throwing all of that away in the interest of high profit for the comparatively small portion of the population that owns all of the firms that hire workers and now apparently will be able to underpay them again. That's, again, the bad news. Um, The good news uh, is that the actual source of the inflation, or I think the most salient source of the inflation, is something that... Even though the Fed itself doesn't control, the administration itself can control if it decides to get serious. So as far as the long term is concerned, the long term source, of course, is that we've outsourced most of our productive capacities um, through the process of so-called globalization over the last 30 30- years. Some odd years. Um, And Biden seems to understand that that was a mistake and that what we really have to do is make America make again, right? We have to bring back productive capacity, jumpstart this economy's capacity to make the things that we buy, and so forth. And that is uh, something you do through fiscal policy and through industrial policy not monetary policy, which is the Fed's bailiwick. So the administration has it within its power to address the longer term salient source of our inflation, quite irrespective of what the Fed does. That's the first bit of good news. The second bit is that there's something more the Fed can do. And that's referred to in that in the Forbes piece that you kindly cited a moment ago. So um, the way the Fed controls interest rates, or at least one of the ways it does so, is it actually buys and sells U.S. Treasury securities, from a trading desk at the New York Fed. The New York Fed, in other words, operates like a kind of investment bank in its own right. They call these open market operations. What we've, What's interesting right now is that the Chicago Fed is now opening a similar trading desk. And it's right next door to the sort of Wall Street equivalent in the derivatives, I mean, in the commodities markets, including the commodity derivatives markets. Um, that's the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, also known as the Merck. Um, if the Chicago Fed is building or putting up, assembling a sort of trading desk or trading floor next to the Merck, that can mean only one thing, and that is that the Fed is contemplating going into open market operations in those particular instruments. Now, those instruments are associated with foods and fuels, and we also have a couple of large strategic deser- reserves in this country. One dating back to the Roosevelt years, that's the Commodity uh, Credit Corporation, and the other dating back to the 70s, that's the st- Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And what I have advocated in that piece, is if those strategic reserves combine operations with the Chicago Fed, we can directly intervene in the prices of those particular commodities in the immediate term and bring down those prices really quickly, irrespective of what Mr. Putin is doing.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Robert Hockett, who's had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He is the author of Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve and Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal. And he has an article at Forbes, Liquidity Reserves and Commodity Reserves, A Marriage Proposal. So in terms of uh, the broader picture of what's happened over the last few decades with easy money for Wall Street, mm-hmm. um, hasn't that led to a lot of irresponsible investment and just this the idea that we have, the financial isolation of the economy is such that Wall Street is all about extracting wealth as opposed to creating wealth?
2: It definitely has, Ian. I mean, the the real problem with financialization is that what it's done is it's made it possible to profit magnificently on very short-term trades, essentially just betting on price movements in the secondary and tertiary markets. So the Fed's easy money policy has primarily fueled that. And then the hope has then been as a kind of side effect, there'll be some benefit to to others outside of Wall Street. It's kind of like burning down your neighbor's house in order to have a little bit of warmth in your own house, right? You get that warmth, and maybe it keeps you from freezing to death. But in the meanwhile, you're wreaking havoc on others. Um, And that's the problem with using monetary policy alone. It's a very blunt instrument. It's essentially like using a, a leaky carburetor in an Old 1960s muscle car or something whereas what we really need is a kind of fuel injection style of monetary policy and that's what we could be doing if a we were doing the kinds of things that I just mentioned that the Chicago Fed could start doing and then if B we also don't rely simply on monetary policy but actually do direct industrial policy like we did in the build-up to the Second World War you know people kind of forget or maybe never knew this country didn't really produce much in the way of war material as the Second World War was coming along And Roosevelt realized that we have to move really fast to become, you know, the quote unquote arsenal of democracy. So we kind of bumped up from producing 3,000 planes per annum in 1939 to producing 50 or 60,000 planes per annum by 1940, 41, 42. Um, And we did that by combining the best of what the public sector can do with the best of what the private sector can do. And we can do the same thing now and say that the war, instead of being against the Japanese or the Nazis, is against climate change, uh, is against uh, poverty, is against uh, the outsourcing of American productive capacity. Basically, a a war level of uh, seriousness, I think, is called for. But happily, it doesn't have to be, I hope it wouldn't be uh, a a literal hot war where you're actually, you know, have bullets flying and the like.
0: Well, Biden, in a way, tried to do some of what you're talking about in terms of of re- restarting productive capacity here in the United States and, and, and transitioning the economy away from a fossil fuel economy with the Build Back Better bill, which of course was ultimately sabotaged by the chairman of the Senate Energy Committee, who happens to be in the coal business, Joe Manchin. And now the Energy Department have sent an invitation to the oil industry executives on Wednesday to meet next week to talk about the high price of gas, uh, seven oil companies. Biden wrote a letter to uh, Marathon, uh, Valero, ExxonMobil, Phillips 66, Chevron, BP, and Shell. Uh, and in the letter, Biden called for oil companies to boost supply of gasoline and slammed the, the high profit margins that they're uh, enjoying now as being mm-hmm. unacceptable. Mm-hmm. So th- that's a, a real paradox, isn't it? That on the one hand, the idea of giving a boost to solar and wind and, and renewable energy, that gets stalled. In the meantime, now he's got to go and threaten the oil companies from the fossil fuel industry that's basically killing the planet, you know, begging them to <laughs> stop gouging the public. So yeah. it feels like Biden's on the defensive and being uh, in effect sabotaged by his own side
2: yeah i think it's a it 's a strange combination of of boldness about what should not be being done on the one hand and kind of pusillanimity on Things that want to be done, um, but it, it seems to me that he can flip that. Um, and there are basically two ways I can, I'll again, sort of divide between longer and shorter term. In the longer term, you might recall I put out a piece uh, shortly after Biden won uh, the election at the end of 2020. Um, basically, it's called the Invest America Plan. Uh, I think it's called Building Back Better with or without the Senate. Um, there's a Forbes version of this and I put out longer papers on it too but basically people just Google an invest America plan in my name or building back better with or without the Senate they'll see that there's a sort of plan A version and a plan B version that I put out the plan B version is what you do if you don't have the Senate in other words if you don't have Joe Manchin and there's an awful lot that Biden could be doing, can be doing, that he's not doing yet when it comes to sort of restoring public, um, I'm sorry, uh, productive capacity in the country and also transitioning rapidly uh, to a green energy uh, base. Um, A lot he can do there. We're also, by the way, in that connection Probably going to have legislation fairly soon that I've been working on with, believe it or not, some Democrats and Republicans alike, probably announced at the end of this month, which will be something closer to the sort of original plan A version of this plan that I've mentioned to you. So I'd say sort of stay tuned on that one. Um, There might be really interesting news to report in a couple of weeks. That's all the longer term stuff. On the shorter-term stuff, what's bizarre to me is the U.S. is, believe it or not, the, the world's largest oil producer. Nobody ever knows that because it never gets discussed, and that's because everybody just sort of assumes and takes for granted that, oh, oil prices are set globally, right? And It's almost a cliché. But it would be very easy for Biden to, to declare, look, we've got a national emergency. We're not going to allow any exports of domestic petroleum. We're going to start refining it right here. We're only going to do this for a brief period of time until the inflation is sort of brought back under control basically to deal with the exigency that is the sudden global spike in prices, thanks to the uncertainties surrounding that war. You might remember, Ian, back in 2008 um, when Putin you know, sort of briefly invaded the country of Georgia. Oil prices shot through the roof. <clears throat> they were even higher than they are now uh, when it you know, adjusted for inflation. Uh, and everybody was talking about how, well, this is the end. Now we're going to have $6 gas at the pumps forever and ever and ever. It turned out it was all through the activities of speculators. Speculators basically exploited the the uncertainties surrounding the war to make it seem like um, things were worse than they were. And people just accepted that. And they'd say the usual cliche, oh, oil prices are set in global markets. But a country that produces all of the oil it needs <clears throat> by itself does not have to accept globally set prices or speculator set prices. So we can control all of that in the short term while simultaneously speeding up the rate at which we do our transition, which, again, Biden can do even with the power that he has, even without the Senate, but which he'll be able to do even better after this legislation um, hopefully uh, gets passed, the stuff that maybe you and I could talk about in a couple of weeks.
0: So you seem to be sort of tentatively optimistic, even though all of the analysis now seems to indicate that we are heading into a recession, you know, Jamie Dimon and others have been saying that, are talking about a hurricane and a catastrophe, and the general sense is that this is going to make life so difficult for the Democrats that they're going to get wiped out in November. Is there any way to avoid a wipeout? I mean, if the if the chairman of the Fed talks about softish <laughs> approach to <laughs> to heading off a recession uh, wall street answered that today by dumping stocks so I don't know.
2: I think, yeah, two things maybe on that one, Ian. Um, so first of all, it always bears noting that when Wall Street types say, you know, that they're feeling like pneumonia coming on, or they think there's a hurricane coming on, and they're worried, um, when the Fred is meanwhile talking about tightening, that's not just a prediction. That's an attempt to influence things. You might remember when Yellen first began to sell assets off of the Fed balance sheet after the last crash was finally kind of over, um, what occurred or what ensued was referred to as the taper tantrum. Basically, Fed said we're going to taper off these uh, these uh, sales uh, of assets and sort of normalize the balance sheet. And all of the Wall Street speculators who had been benefiting by that Fed largess were, you know, horrified that they're going to lose their trading opportunities. They're going to lose those big profit margins. And Jamie Dimon is one of those people. So, in effect, what somebody like him is doing is they're sort of telling. Um, Mr. Powell, look, we want you to go really easy on this because we don't want to lose these opportunities. But he's trying to couch it in terms of you know being concerned for the public or for the entire economy rather than his own wallet, so to speak. So that's part of what's going on here. But the other part of what's going on here, again, is that there are a lot of people who sort of accept as fate what is really a matter of choice. And I think the Biden administration, or at least some people in it, are beginning to understand that we don't have to treat the nation's economy as the weather that we all just kind of look at and worry about and you know, sort of try to propitiate the gods in hopes that they'll, you know, give us a or cut us a break or something. This is all within our control. It's all within our power. We have the capacity as a polity to make the economy that we want and to make the economy do what we want. And some people in the Biden administration, I think, are kind of getting that. They're mainly the the, the Bernie crap types who the Biden administration brought on board in a in sort of a bid to sort of bring about reconciliation within the Democratic Party. But even some of those who would have been part of the Biden team originally, I think, are kind of beginning to understand that now. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, of course, metabolically optimistic on the one hand, but uh, I think that there's good data. There are good reasons that sort of can justify optimism uh, as well. And the the one thing we don't want to allow it to happen is a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of doom uh, to sort of come true. I think we can but, easily avoid that.
0: Sure. But just in closing, given that the market was... A, overheated in any case and inflated. The 401k crowd are going to get hit, aren't they? And they may end up voting Republican uh, already. I think it was, yeah, that the guy that will end up controlling the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, was mm-hmm. uh, rubbing his hands with glee saying, <laughs> you know, the 401k people are all going to vote Republican. So mm-hmm. is that a prospect?
2: It's it's a prospect, um, but it's, it's probably worth reminding ourselves that, first of all, 401ks as retirement accounts are things that people are meant to sort of hold on to for the long run, and it's a bit neurotic to be sort of checking your 401k balance every single day. Uh, People really ought to be paying attention to the old buy and hold idea. Um, So a lot of those with 401ks shouldn't be worried about momentary effects. Secondly, um, you know, for almost, what is it, 95% of Americans, the great bulk of their earnings comes from labor income and labor income is the thing that they should worry about seeing taking a hit and for that reason they shouldn't be upset um, uh, with uh, a little bit of higher inflation if it means that um, people are being paid more and people have better working conditions and have more work choices and the like of course there's a balance that has to be struck but i think at the moment we're sort of talking as though the balance should be uniformly anti-labor and pro capital owner. And I think that's just not the case, right? If there's going to be a slight tip or a slight edge or a kind of where's the thumb on the scale, it seems like that ought to be on the scale on behalf of labor rather than Wall Street.
0: Well, Robert Harkin, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
2: Oh, thanks so much, Gina. Always great
0: to be with you. And again, I may speak of Robert Hockett, who's had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy and is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. His books include Money for Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve and Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal. And he has an article at Forbes, Liquidity Reserves and Commodity Reserves, A Marriage Proposal. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back to look into the growing tensions over Taiwan following warnings by China for the U.S. not to enter the Taiwan Straits. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Swain, the Director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia Program and one of the most prominent American scholars of Chinese security studies. Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years as a Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asia international relations. He also advises the United States government on Asian security issues, and his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, a Strategic Net Assessment. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Swain.
3: Thank you very much, Ian. Pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, on Monday, the Chinese foreign ministry seemed to suggest that they had sovereignty over the Taiwan Straits between the mainland and Taiwan. And then earlier, we'd heard that Chinese officials had told American officials, I guess, off the record or some other non-public means not to enter the Taiwan Straits. And this has prompted the State Department, to say that the United States, of course, will operate wherever international laws allows and will continue, and that includes transiting through the Taiwan Straits. So what's going on here? It sounds as if the Chinese are trying to warn the United States off, and are we likely to basically call their bluff and send warships through the Straits?
3: Well, we have been... The United States has been sending warships through the Taiwan Strait for many, many years on a um, I don't want to say a regular basis, but it's been fairly frequent. And I think that unfortunately, what's been happening is that the United States has been increasingly vocal about these transits, whereas in the past they have not been so vocal and that the Chinese are in return becoming increasingly vocal in their response. And that is overall reflective of the larger problem in U.S.-China relations, where the two sides are in many ways posturing and doing a lot of finger pointing. Um, And in the public realm, at least, they're not doing much in the way of constructive dialogue. Now, the latest Chinese statement here was really not a radical departure from what the Chinese have said before. They, They, in this statement and in the past, they have never claimed that the Taiwan Straits is is China's territorial waters uh, in the sense that, you know, they can regard it as something like within 12 nautical miles of of China's coast, and therefore they can do X, Y, and Z. They they, uh, have said that there are different levels of, if you will, jurisdiction or sovereignty that do relate to the Taiwan Strait. And in their latest statement, they went through what those were. And they basically then ended up by saying, that the United States should restrict uh, its passage through the strait because it's threatening the Chinese interests, because it's provocative, um, and because it's unfriendly. Uh, they did not say, because it's illegal. Um, now, some people may think that this is a semantic difference, but but I don't think it necessarily is. I think much of what the Chinese messaging on this is, is really about kind of in your face, actions and a desire for the United States to reduce those those actions surely the Chinese would like the u.s. to stop going through the Taiwan Strait but I don't think they're going to expect that that's going to happen um, and I don't think that because it doesn't happen they're going to you know launch a uh, an attack um, I think they're trying to communicate their displeasure with the extent of visibility that this is has uh, arrived at now in in U.S.-China relations.
0: And Michael Swain, what do you make of China's President Xi Jinping's uh, legal orders that were just announced, outlining military operations other than war? And in the Global Times, they've fleshed it out a little bit. It's still a bit vague, but they said... It's a legal basis for the People's Liberation Army to safeguard China's national sovereignty, security and development interests. And the legal changes would allow troops to prevent spillover effects of regional instability from affecting China, secure vital transport routes for strategic materials like oil, or safeguard China's overseas investments, projects and personnel. Some analysts are suggesting it's a little bit like uh, Vladimir Putin's talk of... uh, Ukraine as a special military operation. Do you see any anything threatening or bellicose in, uh, or tell me what do you think uh, China's President Xi Jinping is actually saying there?
3: Well, I haven't had the opportunity to look at this in great detail to understand why the Chinese now have started referencing and putting forward the legal basis for taking these kinds of actions. I mean, what the general description sounds like to me is they. The description of what a lot of great powers would say that they would do with their militaries um, if they see threats to their interests beyond their immediate borders, um, that their military serves the function of um, carrying out certain kinds of protection uh, for national citizens in other areas, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not sure the degree to which the Chinese statement here and the law that undergirds it really marks a major departure from the way other countries might particularly the United States or other major powers might define the use of their military overseas. Now as to whether whether it relates to the Ukraine issue, I have my doubts. Um, I don't think the Chinese are trying to use the Ukraine situation to justify um, additional new more assertive more provocative policies towards wherever Taiwan or other places. I think the Chinese regard what's going on in the Ukraine as something that does not serve their interests, um, that they would like to see concluded as quickly as possible, um, but they're not going to come out and outwardly and and in a major way condemn the Russians because of their larger strategic equities with Russia. Um, But they certainly are not using it as a kind of a litmus test or a kind of a A kind of a model for how they're going to interact with other places around the world. I really don't see that as what's driving Chinese thinking at this point.
0: And a former colleague of yours says, Stephen Wertheim, has argued that the U.S. should be emphasizing sovereignty as the main issue vis-a-vis Russia's attack on Ukraine, as opposed to it's a fight for democracy. Um, that That would maybe resonate more with China, although, as you point out, they have other equities. Do you think, do you, do you buy that argument?
3: Uh, I don't think it would necessarily um, influence greatly what the Chinese, how the Chinese would think about this issue. I I do think that focusing on on the issue of sovereignty is an important one. And I think the Chinese should be pinned down on this issue because they're trying to have it both ways. They're trying to say on the one hand that that they protect and defend the sovereignty principle and that any, you know, sovereign nation really should not be, infringed upon um, unless that nation has attacked you or something like that. But at the same time, they, you know, they really sort of go to some lengths to try to justify uh, Putin's invasion of what the Chinese have have recognized as a clearly sovereign country, Ukraine, um, by saying, well, it's NATO's fault. And it's the U.S. fault for supporting the expansion of NATO, which kind of uh, says, well, if you know, the, it must, what it must mean to the Chinese if they really want to be consistent on sovereignty is the possibility of NATO expansion into Ukraine directly threatens Russia's sovereignty over its own territory and that therefore Russia is justified in attacking another sovereign country and undermining their sovereignty. And I'd like that to be put to the Chinese and say, is that the way you look at this problem as a, as, as a threat to Russia's sovereignty that justifies its threat to another country's sovereignty? And see how they respond, because I, I don't think they... I, I think they'd be in a, in a contradiction in, in looking at that issue. I think they're trying to have it, as I say, they're trying to have it both ways.
0: But in terms of the U.S. deterring Beijing from attacking Taiwan... Uh, Biden sort of did recently, I don't know whether it was a gaffe or a deliberate statement, but he, he more or less indicated that the U.S. is going to abandon its longstanding policy of strategic ambiguity. And if this were to be the case, then it would certainly, wouldn't it not lead to a kind of arms race between the United States and China?
3: Well, yes. I mean, I think it would go beyond just an arms race. It would, it would, drastically increased the likelihood of a crisis, if not conflict, between the United States and China over Taiwan. Because a clear and unambiguous statement by the United States that uh, it has strategic clarity on the issue of Taiwan and will come to Taiwan's defense no matter what would be a a direct um, really undermining of, if not destruction of the one China policy towards Taiwan, uh, which some people are calling for. Um, in, in various places, not in the U.S. government. They keep saying that the, uh, the U.S. is supporting the one-China policy, uh, and yet you have U.S. officials, or at least one U.S. official, saying that Taiwan is a strategic entity, That uh, the implication being that it should be kept from China because it's so strategically important. Um, and that, that statement does directly undermine the one-China policy. So it's it's really not a good idea at all To be arguing for strategic clarity on this issue because if the chinese think the united states has really jettisoned the one china policy and is then taking actions designed to separate taiwan from mainland china permanently we are on the road to conflict and i don't know any serious and knowledgeable china or asia security specialist who thinks it would be a good idea to end strategic ambiguity and go to a position of strategic clarity and regarding Taiwan as a strategic asset and a kind of proto-ally of the United States, it would drastically alter the strategic uh, situation in the Western Pacific and, as I say, would bring us closer to conflict.
0: But Biden sort of opened the door, didn't he, recently, to the notion?
3: Mistakenly, he did indeed. And he said it now, I think, three or four times. And Mm -hmm. he states this position— uh, when he says these things, he is not conveying accurately American policy, existing American policy. He is, I think, speaking from, if you will, the gut. He's he's responding to what he sees as the aggression by Russia, justifiably, justifiably responding strongly to the aggression by Russia in Ukraine, and and seeking to caution China against drawing any similar kinds of conclusions about. Taiwan and that leads him to overstate or distort the U.S. position. Uh, The U.S. has in every case when Biden has said this has followed it up by saying our one China policy has not changed. But that repetition is growing in my view empty uh, because of the discussion that goes on on the Hill in some quarters um, by some U.S. officials about the need to be clear about defending Taiwan. Uh, what that means by implication uh, for U.S. forces in, in 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 relation to Taiwan, the closeness of the U.S.-Taiwan defense relationship, and a whole host of issues. In many of these areas, the United States, in response to what they see as Chinese threats, have increased their level of interaction with support for uh, commingling, uh, in some ways, with Taiwan um, as a way of deterring China. And there's there, there needs to be a real limit to that. It needs to be clearer. It needs to be more clearly defined. And, and the United States needs to really step back from some of the actions that it has taken thus far, in my view. And it needs to in- inject much more credibility into its one China policy because there is no viable alternative to that policy.
0: So how do you inject more clarity into a situation that's based on ambiguity, and how much is ambiguity allowing China to have the possibility that they could invade Taiwan and that, that the U.S. would not do anything about it?
3: I, I don't think that the ambiguity um, position of the United States government encourages the Chinese to use force against Taiwan. Uh, I, and most analysts who look at this problem and have done so for many years, believe that the Chinese assume that the United States will intervene in some way uh, militarily if China were to attack Taiwan. So it's really not about, oh, is the United States really going to do anything or not? It's really about, is the United States trying to separate Taiwan from China for strategic or other reasons, political, ideological, or whatever? And um, is it really putting genuine efforts into that? And if it is, what do we do in order to prevent that from happening? And, and there I think you know, we don't wanna get into that situation where the Chinese draw that conclusion and, and just decide that their only option uh, in order to prevent that kind of separation is to try to seize Taiwan, seize and hold Taiwan. The Chinese right now do not have a clear preponderance of military power in the Western Pacific that would allow them to, with great confidence, attack and seize Taiwan. It would be a huge gamble with huge costs, Um, real serious costs, not just potential costs. And they would have to do that because they seriously believe that there is no other option to doing so. And we don't wanna put them in that position where they have that kind of um, um, calculation about what their options are in dealing with Taiwan. Um, so what we need to do then is to is to provide a balance. We have to, in some ways, continue to maintain or strengthen our deterrent capabilities, vis-a-vis working with Taiwan through some arms sales and working with Japan and others, but not to the point of having ironclad commitments that we're going to defend Taiwan or Japan, without question, is going to militarily back us to the hilt if we engage in a a Taiwan conflict, I think both of those kinds of moves would be um, excessively uh, provocative and destabilizing in various ways. We have to be able to continue to strike this balance. But in doing that, we've gotta be able to have a one China policy that clearly states that there are limits to what we will do with Taiwan. That we not, you know, uh, US officials, Blinken has recently said that um, the United States opposes Taiwan independence okay great that's a you know unilateral action by Taiwan to be independent we don't support it but does the United States also remain completely open to the possibility of unification between Taiwan and China that is uncoerced and without force is it still open to that possible eventuality I think it needs to be very clear on that point that it is and that it will, adjust its policies in engaging with Taiwan so that it becomes a believable option, one of several. The other option is eventual independence. Neither of these are gonna happen in any kind of foreseeable time frame. But the whole point of American policy in one sense is to keep kicking this can down the road so that we don't have any power feel that the military option is the only option. And to deal with this, we certainly don't want the Chinese to think this, but we also don't want the Taiwanese to believe that the United States has abandoned them completely so that their only option is to develop nuclear weapons or some other type of action that will just precipitate a conflict. So it's the United States is in a tough position on this policy, but it needs to continue to develop a credible policy that will balance these deterrence and reassurance messages um, over the longer term. And I think ultimately what's, what's needed is you have to have a, a, a better U.S.-China relationship, one that is not so based as it is today on zero-sum types of assessments about the interests of the two countries, uh, worst-case assessments about their motivations and intentions that each side has towards the other. I mean, you know, people in Washington now simply don't trust anything the Chinese say. They think that it's all deliberate obfuscation. And I'm sure the Chinese think much of the same way about the United States. That is a very bad position to be in. And, and we need to alter that situation um, by becoming more realistic about what China is in the world and the kind of threat it does and does not pose to the United States and other countries, and also about our own assets, our own interests, and our own limitations and strengths in dealing with China. And I don't think either side is really doing that job very effectively right now.
0: Well, Michael Swain, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: You're welcome. Nice to be with you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Michael Swain, who's director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program and one of the most prominent American scholars of Chinese security studies. Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years As a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace specializing in China's defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asian international relations, he also advises the United States government on Asian security issues, and his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.